Welcome back to the Museum of Femininity. My name is Charlotte Appleyard. Today I will be giving you part two of my Pre-Raphaelite Sisters series, where I'll be following the life of artist's model Annie Miller. For a brief introduction of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, please listen to episode one, which discusses the life of Lizzie Siddle. Before starting this series, I knew perhaps the least about Annie Miller, although her striking features were easily recognisable in the works of Rossetti, Millet and William Holman Hunt, who she is perhaps most associated with. Like with Lizzie Siddle, Annie's relationship with this well-known painter is drenched with melodrama that makes it deliciously saucy inspiration for fictional retellings. However, like with most other pre-Raphaelite sisters, I found the more I read about her, the more captivated I was by her spirit and forceful personality, substantially decreasing my perception of her as a pretty face staring out of a canvas or an extension of a male artist's story. Annie Miller's own life began in 1835 in a cottage in Chelsea, which was close to the Duke of York pub. Her beginnings were not exactly auspicious, as her mother was a cleaner and her father a wounded soldier who had fought in the 14th Dragoons during the Napoleonic Wars. She had one sister named Harriet, and when their mother died at just 37, they moved in with their aunt, who was a washerwoman and uncle a cobbler, while their father found work for a local builder. They lived in poverty and were representative of a very low class, a label that would follow Annie throughout her career as an artist's model. It was said that the girls were incredibly dirty and that Annie's hair was particularly wild and filthy. Holman Hunt, upon meeting her, quickly reached the conclusion that Annie was well on her way to ruin and described her as being, without even the habits of cleanliness, living in the foulest of courts, allowed to prowl about the streets using the coarsest and filthiest language, in a state of the most absolute neglect and degradation. Based on this rather scathing and judgmental character assassination, it is no wonder Holman Hunt saw himself in a saviour's light following his first meeting of Annie. Annie was working as a barmaid when she was spotted by William Holman Hunt. However, it is possible that he was aware of her since childhood and had, a cert- and had to a certain extent watched her grow up. She was stunningly good-looking, bright, independently minded, with a natural intelligence, and as a poor girl lacking in skills, she would have recognised that the attentions of a wealthier gentleman were not to be snubbed. The first painting she sat for was The Awakening Conscience in 1853, a contemporary piece depicting a young girl with flowing brown hair being grabbed by a lusty gentleman. The furnishings around them are quintessentially Victorian, but her expression is appropriately stunned as moral anxiety grips her. The painting has become so well known that today it is difficult to separate the attributes of the woman in the image with Annie Miller herself. Looking at it, you probably also notice the young lady's face does not quite resemble Annie's. This is because Holman Hunt repainted it after their relationship soured, and we will discuss more of this later. It is, however, an appropriate painting that can shed a lot of light on Hunt's perception of himself and his views on women. Undoubtedly, he was captivated by the young lady, who is pretty and full of so much potential, despite her humble beginnings, and likely saw himself as a typical pre-Raphaelite medieval knight, 
riding in to save a virginal maiden from the slums. So, Annie was plucked from obscurity and placed in the care of her, of her artistic and morally upright saviour, who proceeded to groom her for marriage. Annie's social skills and intellectual refinement was in need of serious polishing, so the first step was to provide her with a decent education befitting a lady. Holman Hunt also viewed Annie as a muse and painted her several times, such as the wild-haired 1859 painting, where a woman sits by a crackling fire, only visible in a convex mirror over her shoulder, her body twisted into a relaxed pose and an intimate smile touching her lips. However, as with the awakening conscience, the face of this work was also painted over with the features of Fanny Warren, who would later become Holman Hunt's wife. Hunt's persistent erasure of Annie in his artwork and in terms of trying to stamp out any semblance of her class or upbringing reflects poorly on Hunt's character and dispels in my mind any sense that he truly loved her for who she was. Hunt left Annie to be schooled and shaped while he pursued his dream of travelling to the Middle East and painting scenes from the Bible in their original setting. He had hoped that upon return he would find his beautiful muse much transformed and suitable for marriage. Prior to his absence, it is likely that their relationship became heated and Hunt's Christian propriety was challenged by the presence of this lively girl who by circumstances of her birth and class had been thrown into his protection and power. Perhaps he struggled to resist her charms, but regardless remained pure in his intentions. While away, Hunt hoped Annie would be a good girl and often referred to himself as her guardian. The language he uses often drifts from paternal to that of a lover, implying inner turmoil regarding their relationship. Perhaps his pilgrimage was also a kind of religious penance to absolve him of his desire for his young charge. While on his travels, he painted the scapegoat, depicting a goat being sent to the wilderness as a symbol of sinfulness. The image was painted near the biblical site of Sodom, which was destroyed for sexual sins. Perhaps this choice of theme can shed some light on what was going on inside Hunt's mind. In Holman Hunt's absence, Annie sat for a variety of different artists, who were all listed by Hunt as being trustworthy sorts. Again, there are touches of the concerned father in his behaviour, terrified that Annie would be ruined away from his watchful gaze. The known Lafario Dante Gabriel Rossetti mentioned in the previous episode was not on the list, neither was George Boyce, but, bes- but despite this, Annie sat for both of them, showing she indeed had a mind of her own. She also sat for John Everett Millet in 1854, who painted one of my favourite images of Annie entitled Waiting. It depicts a realistic image of Annie sat on a stile in a harmoniously beautiful landscape, wearing a pink bonnet. Interestingly, though, for the time, this composition would have appeared salacious, as young women were not allowed to go outside alone, and the sister's uneasy pose likely appeared fraught with danger. There are indeed implications that she is an innocent girl contemplating the arrival of her would-be lover. So once more, Annie has been cast in the role of an innocent victim in constant threat of ruin from men and in dire need of a faithful male protector. During this time, she was under the care of Fred Stevens, who sent Holman Hunt regular letters updating him on her progress. Often these letters were genteel and gave no suggestion that she was misbehaving, 
Personally, I find them patronising and infantilising, such as an example from 1855, where he says, She seems rather more lively than usual tonight. She is, I believe, a good little goose enough, and looks very well having reformed her hairdressing. The words she relayed were polite and untouched by any sort of affection or flirtatiousness. Fred continues, She hopes you are quite well and begs to be most kindly remembered. If Hunt's fatherly language and lack of protest following him being made aware of Annie's social dalliances with other men suggested a certain cooling of affection, then Rossetti's interest in Annie certainly helped reinvigorate his passion, as the pair had a long-standing artistic rivalry. When Holman Hunt returned, he did not propose to Annie, but instead convinced her to continue her education by attending school. It took much pressure on her part, as Annie was stubborn and willful, as Hunt would say. It seems they argued frequently about money and her poor bookkeeping, and even though some say he had he was not put out by Annie sitting for other artists, his jealous and possessive behaviour suggests otherwise. He even approached George Boyce and requested that he gave him all the portraits he had painted of Annie, stating he wanted to marry her after her education of both her mind and manners was completed and wanted, quote, to destroy as far as was possible all trace of her former occupation. This demonstrates that Hunt wanted to destroy Annie's past and identity and shape her into the pure, good, beautiful woman he wanted her to be, the woman in the portraits he painted. Annie never married Hunt, which must have been frustrating for her, because she was in his care and powerless to be free to seek out other male relationships. Hunt had his fingers in her and very much controlled multiple aspects of her life, but in particular her money. On several occasions, she had to call upon him to pay her rent and was swiftly rejected when she suggested training to be a millionaire, indicating how Hunt did not want to relinquish control by giving her even an ounce of independence. So with her lack of financial stability, coupled with the social expectations and boundaries of her gender, she was utterly helpless and unable to break free. Even if she never loved Hunt, surely as a young woman plucked from poverty, she must have at some stage contemplated an expected marriage with him, which accounts for her frustration and their stormy relationship. It is unclear what severed their ties completely, as society was buttoned up in those days and perhaps speaking of such things was considered unseemly. She did, however, find other male companions, in particular with the notorious womaniser Lord Ramley, who was probably much more exciting than the solid William Holman Hunt. Annie pretty much disappeared from the artistic world and ended up occupying a small cheap room at Mrs Stratford's, where she had previously stayed. However, she ran out of credit which prompted the landlady to reach out to Hunt, asking him to regain financial responsibility of Annie. This must have been humiliating for Annie, but what choice did she have? There were few options for women in the Victorian times, and they were very much indebted to, and the responsibility of, the men in their lives. As well as suggesting setting her up in employment, the possibility of shipping Annie to Australia was also raised. This was not uncommon, as men often came to such conclusions after tiring of their mistresses. In response to this, Annie proudly remarked, Let him only pay Mrs Stratford this once more, and I will never trouble him any more. I'll go be a lady's maid. 
Fred, who was acting as the go-between, declared no wife would hire such an attractive lady's maid and that she would struggle to get on a boat as a single woman without a matronly companion. When considering all these things, there seemed to be very few options for her, making her future desolate indeed, and Holman Hunt all the more villainous for holding her captive in the first place and then tossing her to one side after years of dependency. Before their complete break, Hunt presented Annie with a draft of a disclaimer to sign, renouncing all claims against Hunt, and including, too, a description of his unselfish kindness and liberality towards her. However, Annie did not sign this disclaimer, nor part with Hunt's letters to her, which he feared would tarnish his reputation. She had too much pride, and with that decision, the affair ended. She was spotted by George Boyce in 1862 at the International Exhibition, quote, looking as handsome as ever with a young man, rather a swell. So she seemed to be doing okay without her so-called saviour. Following Lizzie Siddle's death, Annie posed for Rossetti as Helen of Troy and in a portrait entitled Women, Women in Yellow. Unlike in Millet's more realistic depiction of Annie, who had quite strong angular features and darker hair. In Rossetti's painting, she, she is a glowing golden vision with mounds of light curls and sultry full lips. Rossetti clearly adored her and idealised her greatly in his paintings. It is no wonder Lizzie Siddle, his muse and brilliantly talented artist, was incensed by his budding affection for Annie Miller. Enjoying her freedom, Annie was no longer suppressed and soon fell in love with and entered into a relationship with Captain Thompson, the cousin of Lord Ranley, who had been introduced to her by Gabrielle Rossetti. They married in 1863 at St Pancras Church, and just like that, a girl from the slums has ascended into personal security and into a family of minor aristocrats, allowing her to enter into a class which was above that of William Holman Hunt's, a man of high pretensions who persistently judged her throughout their relationship for her lowly status. Once more, she achieved this lifestyle on the back of her own merits and gained a financial stability that Hunt never afforded her. Annie had two children, Annie Helen in 1866 and Thomas James in 1867, and had a happy life and a loving 40-year-long marriage. She died in 1925 at the age of 90. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and was as moved by Annie's story as I was. As usual, I'll be including all of the pictures I have mentioned in our social media, so particularly Instagram at the Museum of Femininity. And I'll leave you there. So thanks so much for watching. I'd love to hear what you think. The sources are The Pre-Raphaelite Sisterhood by Jan Marsh and also the fantastic website thepreraphaelitesisters.com, which is a really great blog very thoroughly researched and it was hugely helpful when looking into Annie Miller's life. Okay, I hope you have a lovely day, whatever you may be doing, and thanks again for listening. Goodbye.